we're not spending our money. This is our kids and our grandkids' money we're spending, right? And so if we're spending generational money, we ought to be spending it in a way that is going to last for generations. We ought to have aspirational goals. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bids Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota, here morning, the end of the summer, uh, but also looking forward to some cooler weather. Uh, I am speaking today with Joseph Fresnel, who I will call Joe for the duration of the show, the president of Blue Mountain Networks. Welcome to the show, Joe. I am so glad to be here, Chris. It's fun. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, you and I, we go we go way back. And in fact, I was kind of surprised that when I looked back at the um, uh, history of the Broadband Bits podcast, we hadn't had you on. I thought you were on in like 2014 or 2015 or something like that, but I've never had you on as a guest. No, no, I, I was feeling left out, but I feel better now. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> So, Joe, you had been at uh, Ashland, uh, uh, which was not the beginning of your career, but is where you and I met when you were the Ashland right. Fiber Network, which is a municipal, mostly cable network in Ashland, Oregon. Right. Yeah, it, um, I, I, had been, I had been in the southeast working for um, a regional triple play broadband carrier and got recruited to come out to Ashland to save the Ashland Fiber Network. It, uh, it, was, it was in pretty dire straits at the time. And um, they were losing a lot of money and they didn't know what to do. And I had a history of turnaround management. So I thought, well, what a cool job, you know, to come in and, and save something that had so much potential. And so we did, you know, and it wasn't me, it was the team there. I just provided a few hints and tips about what direction we should go. And everybody embraced that. And we turned it around. And that thing, I think, is still profitable. And, you know, it it went, went from being the poster child of why not to do municipal broadband to, oh my gosh, this is really working and it's transformative and it's doing really amazing things in Southern Oregon. And so I'm, I'm pretty proud of the time I spent there. Yes. Yeah, no. And I think it is, in fact, uh, we, we recently wrote an article. I know that they are wrestling internally with how they should upgrade it, but there was no doubt in the coverage of it that it has been a success, although yeah. it was in dire straits when you arrived. Uh, now, after that, then you moved on to focus on more rural parts of the state, I feel like. I, I did. It was it was funny. I, I got a phone call from a recruiter, you know, when I was down in Ashland and, you know, it's that old turnaround management thing. And and Eastern Oregon Telecom in the northeast part of the state, which actually was started by two electric cooperatives and four independent telephone companies as a grand experiment in competitive, unsubsidized rural broadband. And, uh, and it was in dire straits and they didn't know what to do. And so they enticed me to come up north from where I was in Southern Oregon uh, to uh, to see if we could turn things around it. And, I, you know, it's another one of those grand success stories, I think, with, you know, the backing of the electric cooperatives and the, the ILEX who, who believed in really remote rural broadband. You know, and I think that was bold because that was over 20 years ago. And everyone, is, everyone was saying there is no model for rural broadband unless it's heavily subsidized. Mm -hmm. And uh, Eastern Oregon Telecom never took a single dime of government subsidies to make the business plan work. So today that's grown into 
Blue Mountain Networks. And Blue Mountain Networks now serves more than 30 communities, all rural communities, all the way from uh, west of Portland. So if you're familiar with the terrain out here, uh, east along the Columbia River for about four and four and a half hours to uh, I think our easternmost footprint is the, the three wheat farming communities of Weston, Adams, and Athena. And they've got fiber to the home. And then we go down south too. So we're down moving down into central Oregon. And, and the company serves the two least densely populated counties in Oregon, every community in those two counties with fiber to the home. It has been really rewarding, one, to prove the unsubsidized rural model, and two, to see how really, really good broadband at urban or better than urban rates, I think in a lot of cases, can be transformative for, for rural communities and provide a path towards sustainability. I, I brag about the, the Wheeler County project because it's, it's such a cool story. Wheeler County is 503 square miles bigger than the state of Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. And it's got like 1,400 and some odd people in it. And they, most of them have fiber to the home. That's mind blowing. Of course, we, we were doing all of that right as the pandemic hit. So imagine the lift for those communities, Weston, Athena, Adams, Fossil, Mitchell, Spray, you know, right in the middle of that, they, they went from either nothing or first generation DSL from the incumbent, which was less than a meg download. I mean, mm -hmm. so one megabit download uh, to fiber the home where the slowest speed we offer is 300 meg synchronous. And they went from that right as the pandemic was hitting. We got comments because we got one of our board members who called every new install. And the comment, he would capture comments. And we were calling to see, are we doing a good job? If we missed something, right. you know, do, we, do we, you know, are we doing everything right? Are we helping to educate people on what they can do? Or are we missing the boat? You know, we're trying to make sure that we're better. And, uh, and so the comments that he would capture, you know, one, one gal said, if I were younger, I'd be doing backflips in the street because this is, <laughs> this has saved my small business being able to, to stay connected during the pandemic. And, uh, and, you know, and we've gone on, we've built in numerous other communities since then. And it's, uh, it's been really rewarding. Glad I made the switch, I guess. What, what is the, what is the secret? I mean, you know, it's one thing to say, uh, you know, we're a little bit more efficient than our, than our, than our competitors or this, or that, but like, how do you build so much fiber in so many rural areas without needing the subsidies that have historically been needed? First of all, it's just really good business you know, being willing to work really hard and really efficiently. So, I mean, if, if you're going to gold plate everything just because you can get subsidies to do that, you know, you'll never be able to make this work. And so you, you have to be creative and you have to build partnerships, you know, in both, both the case of not, not Weston, Athena and Adams, which are rural remote. We just did those because the mayors, three women mayors of these wheat farming communities, which I think is cool, they were all women at the time. They were so passionate about bringing fiber to their communities that we just did it. You know, that they were so compelling that we just did it. And you gotta be willing to take a longer ROI than, than is traditionally expected, you know? So you, you have to take a longer view of things. Being principally driven as a company has helped us a lot where we say, we're doing this because it's the right thing to do, not because we're going to make a lot of money in, in three years. 
you know, and I, I think that's given us a little bit longer view as a, a private sector company than what is normal. We were checking in before you'd said that also the mayors did something that's important. And I think people need to hear. And that's that, that you knew the mayors were going to make sure that you had a lot of takers. Right. It wasn't like you were going to come to town and find out only one out of three people were interested. Right. Um, and, and I feel like ma- mayors, local leaders, they need to know that if they aggregate demand, it will it will really increase the odds of finding someone like you to work with. Well, and I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought that up. You know, when we're looking at where do we go next? Uh, the the presence or lack thereof of a local broadband champion is is a binary decision making tool for us. So if there is a local champion, okay, yes, you check that box, and we can go on to do the business plan. If there's not, we don't. We generally don't even consider the community mm-hmm. without local broadband champions because it's one thing to have a mayor or a city councilor or you know, the, the president of the PTA or, you know, the, somebody in the chamber. And I mean, it doesn't have to be an elected official. It can just be somebody who's passionate about broadband and helping their community be, become sustainable. If you've got that person there, it's an entirely different story than if it's me, which, you know, nobody knows. And I come in and say, this is why this is important to you. They're going to be a little more reticent to listen to me than they are somebody that they they've lived with and worked with and, you know, seen at church and seen at the grocery store and, you know, passed, you know, going to the post office box to get their mail. And uh, so having that local broadband champion, it's read that local voice is really important. Uh, You, one of the, one of your partnership models is one that uh, we've encouraged elsewhere where uh, a community will actually um, uh, finance uh, and, and own a long-term, you know, physical, uh, usually fiber optic, um, you know, stretch or, or the physical network. And there's different places where one could do the handoff from the public ownership to the private ownership. Um, But uh, that's one of the models that that you've used. It's not, I think it's not the dominant one that you've used, but uh, you have used that as a model. Yeah. And I, you know, and I would say that I think another reason that we're successful is we don't have a dominant model. We're, we're willing to figure out what's going to work best for a community or a region and, and work within those constraints. And well, and they're not really constraints, work within that framework, I, I guess is probably a more accurate way to say that. And one size doesn't fit all, especially in rural markets. And I think that, you know, larger companies have a hard time being flexible and, and finding that, that, that special way to serve that community or that region. And, uh, and you know, we're, we're just, we're, I, you know, I joke about us being Gumby. We're a bunch of little flexible folks. We're walking <laughs> around willing to bend and, uh, and adapt. And I think that that's been really helpful for us in serving some of these really, and, you know, and back East, you don't hear this word very much, but out here in the West, you know, these are frontier communities. So they actually go beyond the rural standard. You know, there's a federal standard for frontier, and a lot of these communities actually meet that standard, which is much less dense than a rural community. And so our ability to actually serve remote frontier communities with, with again, urban class broadband is uh, in a large part due to our ability to, to adapt. 
So, you know, there yeah, I just want to let me just wait on that quick, because sure. I want to I did. I flew into Portland to go um, actually out to the city of John Day and uh, and driving out there through the gorge. And oh, uh, and I've been out in um, around Smith Rock and um, oh, yeah. and uh, yeah. Beautiful. And I mean, it's it's beautiful. But I will say, as someone who's been all over rural America, uh, when you get west of the Mississippi, it's a whole different kind of rural. Like Iowa is positively dense. It's like Manhattan rural compared to <laughs> eastern Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you, it's really it is frontier and uh, so uh, just for people who haven't experienced it it is something to experience i uh well one of my business partners actually lives back east and and he's just he's a brilliant fellow and he he has i mean he's so passionate about doing what we're doing so i'm, I'm glad to have him on board but he uh he lives in new jersey he's got offices in manhattan and uh, the first time he was going to fly out to meet out here. We were doing a strategic planning session in Sun River, which is in central Oregon. And he said, well, where do I fly into it? I said, well, probably Portland. He said, well, can I get an Uber? And I said, no, it's, you know, it's about three and a half hours to Sun River from the airport. And I said, but I'll come get you. And he goes, wait, what? (laughs) You would come get me? I said, yeah, it's not that far. And it's just a whole different perspective. So it it is... Uh, let me just anyone who's ge- more geographically inclined than I am will have noted that Iowa is in fact west of the Mississippi, but I was thinking of the Missouri or whatever. But like, there's a dividing line where, as you go west, it really gets much less dense. So, it, yeah, just a quick it's, correction. It, it's pretty crazy. So it is, and I would encourage people, especially you know, policymakers, if you haven't been out here, you know, it could be Washington, it could be Utah, it could be you know, Idaho or Oregon, you know, you, you, you ought to come visit and listen, I'd be happy to host you. So anyone listening, if you want to, you want a tour of what rural frontier America really looks like. So when you're making policy, policy decisions back in DC, uh, that you understand the impact of what you're, you're actually doing uh, on people who live out here. And, and we're one of the most productive farm areas in, in the world. I mean, the land out here. So it's not, just desolate. Yeah, I, I would encourage people not to just dismiss rural frontier Western United States as as irrelevant. It's not. Absolutely, it's not. Some of the some of the most amazing advances in the United States are actually happening happening in rural and frontier Western United States. I mean, some of the work with drones and water use and you know, precision agriculture and precision irrigation. It's astounding. You want a tour. Just give me a call and I'd be happy to host you. That would be fun. All right. Now let's get back to the, the partnership. So, partnership. Um, so just briefly, let's go over the one that I've already described. How did, how did you work with a town uh, where they owned the, the fiber? So this actually is the Wheeler County story. So Wheeler County got a, uh, a grant from the state for workforce development. And Wheeler County really is, I mean, it's not adjacent to an interstate. I mean, it really is kind of middle of nowhere, Oregon. And uh, one of the things that the state legislature did, and this is probably five years ago, is they recognized that, that they had an obligation to try and, and help all parts of Oregon with state level jobs. And so they actually dedicated a number of state hospital uh, medical transcription jobs for Wheeler County, but there was no connectivity there. So they said, well, if you can build the the infrastructure, we'll actually put some of these medical transcription jobs from Oregon Health and Sciences University in Wheeler County, which will boost the economy. That that could be really cool. So they gave this this grant. So the judge, 
in Wheeler County, who is effectively the head of the, the county board of commissioners. He's, he's, he's elected, but he's the judge. He had this brilliant idea of going out to RFP and seeing if somebody would build the infrastructure and then a second RF, RFP to, to operate the infrastructure. And so we, we responded and we said, because we do fiber, we do fixed wireless, and we also are a reseller of a satellite service. And so what we proposed is we could, we could actually serve 99.9% of the addresses in Wheeler County, even the remote cabins, because in that case, we could serve them with one of the satellite solutions. And, uh, but for the communities, Fossil, Mitchell, and Spray, we would build fiber to the home. They would own it. We would operate. There was a lot of discussion about, well, you know, we really would prefer to have competition because, you know, we've heard competition is good. So we had discussions about competition. And, you know, in a, in a remote frontier county like that, where there, it's three remote communities with a population just north of 1,400, uh, it, you, there is no business model for a competitive environment because, it, you know, and colloquially we say that that would end up having too many pigs feeding at the trough and everybody would starve and then the consumers would suffer. I do think it is possible that if they were to build like an open system, you could have like companies that were headquartered in Atlanta and other places that might sort of fly in and provide service. And I'm in favor of, of, of trying to figure out the balance between these things. I don't think it's preferable to be able to do that, but you're not going to have multiple locally based companies. And no, I think that that's, and I think that's the highest preference from my point of view is that localness. It is. And, you know, and I was going to say, yeah, if you do that, but then, then it's just a commodity, you know, they're right. not a part of the community. They're not, we do digital literacy training. I mean, we're involved in the local community. You know, we, we generally will help with local charities. And, you know, and if it's just a commodity, if they're just a service provider on an open network, especially in a really, really uh, lightly uh, populated area like that, you know, there's no real business model for them to have local presence unless they're the only local presence. We found a way to answer that concern by actually building it into the contract with Wheeler County for operate the operations of the network that they get all of the benefits of competition just without watering down on the market to the point where it was no longer financially viable. Uh, and so, you know, they, they got urban class speeds at, at better than urban prices. Uh, you know, they got customer service level guarantees in the contract. If we violate any of that, then they can just kick us out and get another provider. But as long as we do a good job and we're a good community partner, it works really brilliantly. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and I talked about some of the, the responses from the folks there. And, you know, we've got, uh, it's, it's just south of 90% of all of those addresses are hooked to fiber now. The community response to that has been pretty good. So what are some other partnership models that you've used? The adjacent county, which is the second least densely populated county, in Oregon, and it, it actually is a bigger county and it has more communities, but it, uh, it's a little bit more spread out. And it's Sherman County. Sherman County had a little bit of money. They didn't have enough money to, to build the infrastructure and own the infrastructure, but they had enough money from some wind farm subsidies that the county got for economic development to actually subsidize the build. So in this case, they subsidized the build. We built it, we own it. 
and we're the only operator on it and they have the same guarantee. So what did they get for their, their contribution to help make the, the case to build the, the fiber to the home through the, the county? What they got was that, that guarantee of, of speed and price and customer service for their contribution. So uh, that one seems to work really well also. And you know some of the benefits of this model over the Wheeler County model is in this model, since we own it, we have to pay property taxes on it. Mm-hmm. So they get recurring revenue as a county off the property taxes. In Wheeler County, since the public owns it, there's no property taxes associated with it. So, you know, and I mean, it's not huge, but I mean, it's real money for a small county like that. Right, they're real, real trade-offs. Money. Both of those seem to work really well. And, I, and I'm not in favor of one over the other. Like I said, it really just depends on the circumstance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked about three different models where it's just private sector investment. That was the the Western Athena Adams, you know, the wheat farming communities where we just did that. That's working great. The publicly owned infrastructure, but operated by the private sector and then subsidized infrastructure that is owned and operated by the private sector, but with the the caveats because of the contribution that the community gets what they were hoping to get out of that without having to water down the market with competition three great models, and they all seem to be working really well. And now in order to, to build the networks, you still need more uh, more resources. So um, we talked a little bit about private equity and, uh, or we talked about equity partners and, and I had raised for you, you know, I'm deeply concerned about firms that are taking on uh, private equity deals that are causing uh, people like you to lose control of their firms. And I think it's, it can be a devil's bargain. Uh, you have been pretty savvy, I think, in how you strike uh, deals for equity. It depends on what your end goal is, you know. So if it's if it's all about money and profit, then it it doesn't matter if you lose control as long as you've got, you know, part of the if you've got equity in the company. You know, after the private equity firm comes in, you don't really care as long as you're going to make money off of it. Uh, you know, for for companies like mine, and uh, you know, and my company is not as rare as you would think. There are a lot of companies out there that are principally driven. You know, you just don't hear about them. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the big national providers kind of overshadow what the, the little folks like us are doing out, especially in rural parts of the United States. But there are a lot of great you know, cooperatives and privately owned companies that are just doing really heavy lifting and hard, hard to serve places. And, you know, and many of them are principally driven. And I think you have to start there. That was the framework which I started when we said, you know, we're profitable, we're free cash flow positive, we're making a difference. I just see so much need that I can't, I can't address with the resources that I have organically and my partner, business partner had organically at the time. So we went in search of a private equity partner who was similarly principally driven. And we found one and it was just, it was one of those, you know, providential things. A buddy of mine was speaking at a, a conference back, I think in Minneapolis, St. Paul, actually. And, uh, and after, and he used us as an example uh, of what can be done in rural markets without a bunch of subsidies. And then he was on an elevator afterward with the guy who is now my equity partner from back East. And, and this guy's like, I want to, I want to talk about who is, you know, what is mm-hmm. this company, Eastern Oregon Telecom? That's how we got connected. And uh, so I actually, he, you know, he was in Manhattan. We actually met in Minneapolis, St. Paul. That was the first and only time I've been there. And I love it, by the way, what a cool <laughs> twin cities that people were so nice there. And I, you know, so I, I enjoyed my visit, met him and we talked about 
the why, why would he want to be involved? You know, what, what is he hoping to accomplish? And everything he said was echoing what drove us as a company. And, uh, and so we brought him on board and, uh, you know, he's, he's brought in some additional folks for resources and, you know, some cash. And that's what it's allowed us to grow so rapidly, really make a difference. I think I got lucky. <laughs> My cautionary is there are a lot of private equity firms out there that are, it's just about the money. And, you know, and I get that, but you know, if you're, if you really are going to go down that path, you have to be super careful. You don't end up with the wrong partner because, I've watched other companies in the Pacific Northwest go down that path and get the wrong partner. And it's just not been pretty. It's not been good. Right. So don't settle. I think that's, you know, like don't you, settle. No, yeah. it would be better to hang on to your company as a lifestyle company, you know, doing what you do and making small incremental advances. It would be better to do that than it would be to get the wrong partner. Now you had mentioned champions and and were very positive about that. Now you've been helping to cultivate champions through something that we've seen both in Washington and in Oregon, uh, these yeah. broadband action teams. Uh, and and so, uh, what what do people need to know about the broadband action teams and how how they can be effective? It's actually one of the coolest things I think that's popped up over the last couple of years uh, in the broadband space is these broadband action teams. And so. A lot of this, yeah, you, know, you know, I remember pre-pandemic, I'd, I'd go out and talk to a city council and I'd be met with ambivalence about broadband. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, um, I don't care, whatever, get out of here. And uh, and then the pandemic hit and suddenly everybody was calling me going, Fernell, where are you? Why aren't you here already? I'm like, you do remember you guys yawned when I was there last time. And, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, one of the cool things that has happened because of the pandemic is there have been all these grassroots efforts to uh, to solve the problem. And so they have taken the form of broadband action teams. Some of them are for a city only. I mean, and when I say a city, it may be a town of, you know, 5,000 people, you know, they may have their own broadband action team. Many of them are a single county. Some of them are coalitions of multiple counties. And so in Oregon, 22 of our 36 counties are represented by broadband action teams now. So, you know, they're local leaders, they're educators, they're, you know, they're medical folks, they're folks from the library district, they're interested, you know, just individual citizens from that area. And they have pooled together and, and formed formal broadband action team. Two of them have received a big EDA grants from the federal government to do assessments. I, I get so excited about the broadband action teams. It's, it's hard to communicate how proud I am of the Citizens Oregon for doing that. And so I was in the role for more than a decade as chairman of the Oregon Broadband Advisory Council, which advised the legislature and the governor's office. And I was on the council appointed by the governor to represent rural Oregon. And so I'm not on the council now, but you know, because of that work, I've been able to help many of these broadband action teams get started and then kind of guide them through the process. What do you do first? You know, so, and that's the, that's the first, well, what do we do? What's the first thing we ought to do? And you got to quantify the, the problem. And so they, they started doing assessments in their, either their town or their county or their multi-county area, doing assessments, trying to gather good information so they could objectively quantify the problem so that when we go after money, we're, we're able to say, this is exactly the problem we're trying to solve. And, uh, and then some of them have actually already taken a step to develop plans beyond that. 
And so they've got strategic plans, broadband plans on how to address the issue. Now, one of the things, and I, I don't know if this is on your list, but it's certainly on my list that that became really evident really quickly is that we have horrible mapping. And and you know, and that's that's I know anyone who's listening is shocked. You know, it might have come up once or twice. It might have come up once or twice. Um, and so we we started trying to figure out how do we get how do we get a good broadband map? And this conversation started with broadband action teams. And we have, a, we have a fairly new broadband office at the state level. And so they're just really trying to, you know, they're scrambling basically to keep up with, you know, the ARPA rulemaking and, and now the BEAD rulemaking and all of the things that they have to do. And it's a fairly small office. On their list is a map. You know, they want to build a map and they have money to build a map, but, you know, they have so few resources. So we're going, we can't wait. All of the broadband action teams say, we can't wait. So we started doing some research and we found uh, Russ Elliott up in, and he's not there anymore. He's moved on to a, another cool job, but he was the broadband office. He was the manager of the broadband office in the state of Washington. And when he took that job, this pre-pandemic, he immediately recognized he didn't have good data. So he partnered with a, a company called GeoPartners to develop his own state broadband map. And it's a super cool map. And so we talked with Russ, the leadership of all of the broadband action teams actually invited him to talk to us. He talked to us about this platform. So we went to the state, we said, look, for, you know, less than $100,000, we could build a state broadband map. It's all, it's all grassroots. You know, it's, you have to feed it with, mm -hmm. with people doing the speed test. So it's not going to pull data. You're going to have to actually push data to it. But, you know, with all the grassroots organizations, we can do that. And the state said, you know, we're probably at least a year out, maybe two on our broadband map. We, we just can't, we can't absorb that. So Link Oregon, which is our statewide higher education and research fiber network, the economic development districts and the broadband action teams partnered to raise the money and they're doing their own map. So we're That's building great. our own statewide map. We're not waiting on government to do it. We're just doing it ourselves. And so it's the Faster Internet Oregon initiative. And so you can find it at fasterinternetoregon.org. And that all that data populates the map. Now, here's what's really cool. You know, these folks are going, well, look, we're just trying to solve problems. We'll gather the data. The NTIA and the USDA have already recognized that this is good objective data when Washington did it. So they've made funding decisions based on this kind of data. So we know that the data is going to be well-received. We're actually doing it right now. And once it's done and the state is ready for it, we're just going to hand off the data to the state so the state can populate their map and take over ownership of this in a year when they're ready. It's a cool project. So the broadband action teams rock. They're amazing. You know, applause to everybody who's volunteered and been involved in them. I am so pumped about what they're doing. You can tell that the broadband mapping has been effective because the cable companies are putting, I would guess, millions of dollars into a campaign to try to delegitimize the mapping tools. And um, and they're deeply, they're frustrated and they were like, oh, we don't like the methodology of that test. We prefer our tests, which are secret and nobody really gets the data unless we release it. And nobody should trust this test that's open and available to the public. Uh, so that is going on behind the scenes. So you're aware. It, oh, I'm aware. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I 
I would say that, you know, through all of that rhetoric and all of the lobbying, both at the state and the federal level, uh, you know, because one, existing providers are afraid. You know, this has created fear because the, the, the federal government, rightly so, and I love what the FCC is doing. I haven't, I'm not always a fan of the FCC. I was just going to say, I don't always, uh, you know. No, I'm not always a, a fan of the FCC, but, you know, Tara Rosenberg has been really, really good about saying we should set, one, we should get good data. So she's like, I don't want to spend more money until we have good data. And, you know, there's questions about whether their new map is going to be good or not. But, um, Maybe you know, at least, at least there's a, finally, you know, political attention being given to that. And then two, she's saying we should set aspirational goals for, for the spend that we're making because we're not spending our money. Chris, mm-hmm. this is not yours and my money. This is our kids' and our grandkids' money we're spending, right? And so if we're spending generational money, we ought to be spending it in a way that is going to last for generations. We ought to have aspirational goals. And so those aspirational goals, when you look at the technology that's deployed just pragmatically, and I have some cable plant out there, so I, you know, I, you know, I, I'm an old cable dog. I know what cable is capable of, and cable is not... Even with DOCSIS 4, cable is not going to be scalable well into the future because just of the technology physics limits what you can do with a coaxial cable or a copper line. I mean, it just, that's just, you can't overcome physics. You know, they're afraid, and I think rightly so, and that's what all the lobbying is about. And I, you know, this is, again, a message for, for policymakers, even at the local level. You know, we should be setting aspirational goals with this because we're not going to spend this money again in 10 years. We're not going to spend this money again in 20 years. So if we don't do it right today, if we settle for a substandard architecture and a substandard outcome, then that's what our kids and our grandkids are going to have to live with for generations. And we and I don't want to go. I'm ashamed at what we did when we were in charge, I want to say, see what we did for you guys. We enabled all of this. And so that's my policy push. And I agree with you. I think it's interesting. This is going to come up as states decide the areas that are too high cost. Um, so states have the authority um, or, in fact, even the requirement that they will determine where they draw the line for things being too high cost to meet the minimum speed requirements of the bead program. Right. And one of the things I find interesting is that you had mentioned that you dabble in fixed wireless. You said you use fixed wireless. I don't know if you we dabble do. or not. We got we have thousands of customers. So, yeah. So you use fixed wireless, yeah. but a lot of the fixed wireless providers are ones that are are concerned about aspirational goals being too aspirational. And they'll say, you know what, like what we're doing, it meets people's needs. We should get money too. Um, so uh, I'm kind of curious how you, how you respond to that. No, no, I, you know, and I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you know, we shouldn't spend any of this bead money on uh, architecture or infrastructure that's not fiber-based. I mean, we just shouldn't do it. Uh, you know, we, sh- we, we should push fiber as far out as we can get it. And then, you know, this is one of the things that I've often said pre-ARPA, pre-infrastructure fund is that, if, you know, if you get affordable middle mile there, I'll build the last mile with my own money. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've said that. So, you know, the big barrier for me is affordable middle mile access. And when Which I, I think is unique to Frontier. I mean, I think I do think that that's more right. common in Frontier areas than in other rural areas. It, it is. It is. And I, it may be unique to the West, but, 
you know, it's still, and that this is where some of those those really, really expensive builds exist. You know, they're not, they're not in Connecticut, you know, they're not in Pennsylvania, <laughs> they're out here. So this is where the discussion is relevant. And I if we can get fiber closer, then at some point I'll solve the problem, or people like me will solve the problem. You know, companies like mine will solve the problem. Spending money on uh, an interim solution, and that's what we've done. We just keep spending money on interim solutions, incremental advances. And, and then every five years, we're coming back to the well going, well, let's spend the money again. Let's spend the money again. And I'm, well, I'm tired. I want to spend well, it once. There's still another dynamic. I mean, I'm, that so resonates with me. I agree with you totally. <laughs> the, but the other thing is that as we're trying to spend the money, we find that communities and, and actually, um, you know, as you and I are recording this, this is going to run a few days after you and I record it. But like um, we just recorded a, an episode of Connect This, um, our, our show on Thursdays, typically. And we had on two guests from Louisiana. North you know, have Louisiana. you done the monster truck? commercial thing you could do that I'm a monster that's it Sunday that. Sunday <laughs> Sunday <laughs> So the uh, the uh, these folks from from Northeast Louisiana, uh, this is some of the least connected parts of Louisiana, which is not a well connected state. No. They've been organizing for years in the in this Delta Interfaith Alliance around trying to improve connectivity in both the rural and what we would think of as a slightly more dense areas, but it's still quite small towns. Yeah. And they finally got it. The governor actually flew there on a helicopter to announce the grants to expand fiber to the home from the electric cooperative nice. and at the in, at the last second even after it appeared that like the the time should have elapsed for challenges the cable company which is one of the lesser known um national cable companies uh cable one which is now doing business as sparklight is challenging it and they've actually delayed the opening the network was supposed to have its groundbreaking yesterday as you and i are recording it and now it's caught because that cable company is claiming oh no no we actually provide these speeds no one's ever seen them there's no record of them existing but we've made this claim now and the whole award is thrown into doubt and this is something i know you've had to deal with and and frustrated with is this idea of the incumbents having some sort of right of first refusal and how that is just deeply unfair to people who have lived for years without getting the investment that they need. If I could throw up right now, I would I would do it, but that would be rude on a podcast. So <laughs> it would be yeah. a first too. <laughs> it would be a first. <laughs> I don't know where this comes from, but I actually had a, a senior vice president of an incumbent tell me that uh, we didn't have a right to build fiber in a town where they were serving it with first generation DSL because it was their territory. And, you know, and, and, uh, and then we had, we had a bill passed here in Oregon in the 2020 legislature, Senate Bill 1603, that, uh, that had language in it that I still am astounded. And it, it did not go through the Oregon Broadband Advisory Council. They went around the council. It should have been vetted by the council before it was, it was submitted for, uh, for a vote. But it has language that that says two things, it said, and this, this came from the incumbents, that uh, the Oregon Broadband Office shall may not award a grant or a loan under the program for proposed project to develop broadband service infrastructure to serve residential locations that at the time of application for the pro proposed project is received by the department have access to terrestrial wireline or wireless broadband service at a speed of at least 25.3. The second piece is that right of first refusal. But what they said was anywhere that there's 4G cellular, 
which if you look at if you look at Verizon's map, and you know it's not accurate because I I've, I've got Verizon and they're great, but you know their map says oh you've got ubiquitous 4G pretty much everywhere in the world, and that is just not true. Right, like if you're so, sitting on the roof, you look at their map, sitting on the roof in a lot of places, maybe <laughs> right, holding it up three feet of you know on a step ladder, maybe. So basically, they they protected all of their territory by putting this language in. And this language is being challenged now. We're hoping to get it fixed in the next legislative session. But uh, so, you know, so they protected their territory and doomed, until we fix this, doomed these communities to having what they've had for the last 10 years forever and, and maybe limited our ability to actually leverage the bead funds that are in the ARP. ARPA funds that are coming to the state. And then they had the unmitigated gall to add in there this right of first refusal. And it's not just a right of first refusal where you go, okay, we're going to go out to RFP. Are you going to do it? No. This right of first refusal says if someone responds to the RFP, spends the money on the engineering and the response and wins the RFP, then, then they can exercise, exercise their right of first refusal and say, no, we want to do that. And they're saying, but this is our territory. We should have a right of first refusal. And I, my answer to that is, listen, if, if it's your territory, that means you already have infrastructure there. You should be able to respond to the RFP and win it because the cost to build is naturally going to be less than somebody who's a new entrant to the market. And yet they put this language and I just, I find it almost criminal. And I know, you know, you can't, it's not against the law. Not when you're writing the law. (laughs) (laughs) I really, really struggle with that, that, you know, and and I've had conversations with the, the, the associations here that represent those folks. And, you know, I've tried to get them to say, look, you guys should be taking a leadership role on setting aspirational goals. I mean, if, these really are your communities, and that's the way that you view them. Why aren't you the champion of a, a synchronous gigabit goal for our state? Why, why are you not leading the charge instead of protecting 25.3 as the standard? And the answer was, well, that's the federal standard. You know, we're just echoing the federal standard. Yeah, and from so 2014. I guess, I guess that's good enough. You know, in in their mind, that's good enough. And so we should just settle for what the FCC says is what we need for our communities to be able to be sustainable and competitive. Yeah, I'll say that in my mind, that is a pathetic dodge from people who otherwise would not accept anything coming out of Washington, D.C. as being legitimate simply because it's coming from Washington, D.C. It is. I I think it is a failure of leadership. You know, and this is this is one of the heart-wrenching things for me. I have not every state has a really, really robust, diverse group of internet service providers. You know, some states have one or two or three, mm-hmm. you know, and that's it in the entire state. And Oregon has always had this really, really competitive, really diverse group of, I mean, from small mom and pops to small cooperatives and family-owned. ILEX all the way up to the big guys, you know, and, uh, and we have always, I mean, up until all of this money showed up, we have always worked well together to solve problems for Oregon. And as soon as just the, the first whiff of this money wafted over Oregon, 
we I started seeing this kind of behavior, and I it, I, I it's very disappointing. Mm-hmm. It's heart wrenching for me to see this kind of behavior uh, from a state that used to be visionary. I felt like and it's not it's not the state. I I shouldn't beat up the state, but the 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 internet service provider community has really always been very visionary and worked together well, and and it's so fragmented now. And money has done it. I almost wish we weren't getting the money. That's too bad. I mean, I, I think that I do think we're in that period where we're filled with our doubts and frustrations. And I'm hoping that we'll work past these and the way our human memories work. We'll actually forget a lot of the pain we're experiencing right now. We'll focus on the good that comes from it. So, you know, and, you know, and so I encourage, I encourage people all across, you know, your entire listenership. I encourage you, if you're a broadband champion and you're really, really you understand that this is a multi-generational investment. You know, don't settle, don't settle. It goes back to, you know, picking a broadband partner, right? You know, picking a goal, don't settle. Don't allow the rhetoric to cause you to settle. And, and there's a lot of rhetoric out there and a lot of money being spent on lobbying right now. So don't listen to that. Listen to what you know to be right. And let's pursue that like these broadband action teams are. Well, that's no better place to leave it than that. Joe, it's it's been wonderful. I look forward to having you on uh, on an episode of Connect This because I think you're going to fit in really well with that format. So thank you for this and look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks, Chris. It was great. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle's at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.